You know, when we uh, decided to to, uh, to move here, one of the things that I was thinking about was, you know, we have a new place here, and we have some new people. I can see some new faces that are giving the effect a look. And so one of the things that I thought might be good for us to do is to kind of go back to basics a little bit, go back to some of the uh, founding principles that make the effect the effect, that, that uh, it's a differentiator, I suppose, but it's our unique way, hmm, maybe unique is too strong a word, our way of following Jesus that sets us apart, that, that makes a, a palpable difference in what we're doing here and the way that we approach things. Um, for instance, you may, some of you may be wondering whether you've been here for a day or, or a few months or a few years, you know, why does the band sit as opposed to stand? Why am I sitting as opposed to standing? You know, there are reasons for the things that we do, and sometimes they're not explained. But we believe that in worship, the focus is not supposed to be outward, but inward. And so if the band is sitting along with everybody else, it kind of puts us more on the same plane. It kind of takes us out from that, that more strident performance kind of a posture and allows us to melt back into the background. We don't put video, live video, up on the screens. What we're trying to do is to shut down some of the visual centers so that the gaze can turn inward. I, I felt that so strongly um, this morning in, in the middle of, of our worship set. Everything just got really quiet. I hope that you felt that too. Um, Vernon turned to me and said, there was an anointing brother right in the middle. Did you feel it? I go, yeah, I did. That was really cool. You know, but that's it, trying to just keep things on that lower key. As far as why I'm sitting right now, in the ancient, uh, to the ancient Hebrews, you stood to pray and you sat to teach. And that was kind of the, 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 uh, the tradition in the temple. So everybody would stand and they put the prayer shawl on when they were going to um, pray. And then the teacher would sit down in order to teach. And I am not a preacher, I am a teacher. And there's a difference between the two. Uh, a preacher's... Uh, a preacher is there to persuade, and a teacher is there to help people engage, engage in their own journey. We're not here to tell you what to think. We're not here to tell you what to believe. But what we are here to do is to model our belief systems in our daily actions, to let those really speak for us, and to walk shoulder to shoulder with each other as we take our individual journeys. And so what we do here on a Sunday morning is to, yeah, let fly some new information, maybe some concepts, maybe some things that you didn't know before, hadn't really thought of in a certain way before, which is always the greatest compliment you can give me. Hey, Dave, I've never really thought of that, that way before. Nice. That's great. Because all of those little bits can open up cracks in what was more an impenetrable wall of your worldview and let you know that there is another there out there that you can move toward if you so wish. But we're here together. The most important thing is that whether we're in leadership or whether we're not, we're all in the boat together. We're all doing this together. No one is in a better or worse position except for relative to each other. We're all rowing together, and that's the way we want to maintain things. So with that said, what is another basic fundamental that we can take a look at this morning? You know, it's so easy. I don't know if any of you know about chaos theory, but it's small changes in input make huge changes in output. 
Butterfly flaps its wing in Beijing and it snows in New York. You ever heard that one before? You know, small change in, in just being off a half a degree at the beginning of a long journey. At the end of the journey, you have really diverged. And so it's really easy to get off track unless we come back to our founding and our defining principles from time to time to remember why it is that we're here. What is our reason for existing in the first place? Now, as I was thinking about this, I ran across a couple of articles online that were talking about uh, church meetings, business meetings and church meetings and disputes that churches got into. And I was just kind of shaking my head in disbelief. And I wanted to share some of them with you because it's kind of fun uh, in, in a sad sort of way. But uh, if any of you have been in church leadership or really any kind of leadership and you go to uh, business meetings, you know that they can kind of drone on. They can kind of uh, take on a life of their own and you can kind of get lost in the weeds and in the details. Well, in a particular church, um, they spent a multi-hour church meeting deciding whether to put a lock on their dumpster in the alleyway or not. And after hours of debating this, they still didn't come to a resolution and they had to adjourn the meeting without resolving whether to put the lock on the dumpster. Well, in the following week, somebody dumped a dead body in that dumpster. The very next day, they had the lock on the dumpster. Another church was going through a name change. And name changes can be really difficult because they do go to your your identity as a faith community. But (laughs) this... Argument why not to change the name was that how will Jesus know who we are when he returns if we change our name? (coughs) Another church had a two-hour meeting discussing donuts. The issue was whether or not people could eat them in the worship center. Now, we've had meetings over donuts, too, but they last about this long. And, uh, you know, but two-hour meetings over donuts. Uh, another meeting had a multi-hour business meeting on what type of lawnmower blades to purchase for the lawnmower. There was a record time for a business meeting. This church business meeting began at 7 p.m. and took a break at midnight to resume the next evening. The point of contention was the type of wheels to put on a church shuttle, standard or chrome. There was another uh, church meeting was a vote to close whether to close the church. The congregation had called a business meeting for the singular purpose of voting to close the church due to lack of interest. Not enough members showed up to have a quorum. (laughs) Kind of enough said, don't you think? Other issues that churches have been fighting over. And these are actual churches that responded to a pastor who's a blogger who was asking about church meetings and things that have torn their churches apart. They had one church wrote in and said they had an argument over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. There was a 45 minute heated argument over the type of filing cabinet to purchase black or brown or two or three or four drawers, a fight over which picture of Jesus to put in the foyer, a petition to have all church staff clean shaven right there. All right. A dispute over whether the worship leader should have his shoes on during the service. <laughs> you got to watch these worship leaders. You know, it's kind of funny, but, you know, our, our co-pastor, Jeff, you could hardly keep the shoes on that surfer boy. I mean, he was, all, especially on Tuesdays, you remember? He was always up there in bare feet. Hi, I'm Jeff. I'm a heroin addict. You know, and that was just who he was. He was a little better on Sunday mornings, but, uh, yeah, to, to, 
decide whether he should have his shoes on during the service. Business meeting arguments about whether the church should purchase a weed eater or not. It took two business meetings to resolve the weed eater issue. An argument on whether the church should allow deviled eggs at the church meal. Think about it. Think about it. This guy said, only if it's balanced with angel food cake. Okay. Uh, Some church members left the church because one church member hid the vacuum cleaner from them. It resulted in a major fight and church split over a vacuum cleaner. A dispute in the church because the Lord's Supper, (laughs) the Lord's Supper, in other words, communion, had cran grape juice instead of straight grape juice. Ah, an argument over whether to have gluten-free communion bread or not. And two different churches reported fights over the type of coffee. In one of the churches, they moved from Folgers to a stronger Starbucks brand, and in the other church, they simply moved to a stronger blend, and many members left the church over that issue. Oh, my gosh. You know, you read through these, and you just have to shake your head, and it's like, how... In the world, does a church body, a group of people professing to follow Christ, get so lost in the weeds that they can't see what's going on right in front of them, that they can't see these issues? But you know what? As as I was thinking about this, it's not quite as unbelievable. I mean, when you stand out and it's it's, uh, from the outside looking in, it's so absurd. But I guarantee you, those people inside were so passionate and so angry and everything, and and just inside that bubble to the extent that they thought these issues were really important. They thought they should take a stand. And it's kind of like when we get to the point that we're no longer ready or willing to face the real issues in life, the deep foundational issues, then the trivial issues become more and more important to us. And you may have seen this in marriages. You've seen this in, in, in different, you know, just human groupings how the trivial gets so much attention because the deep issues are not being faced. You know? They become more and more important. They become kind of all-inclusive. And, they, and it's a place to park our passion. It's a place to park our drive because we don't know where else to do it anymore because we're so lost in these issues. You know, Jesus faced the same sort of dynamics in his ministry in the first century within his own religion. And I wanted to read through some of these so we could just see, this is not new. This, this goes on over and over and over again. Uh, if you take a look at Matthew 23, <coughs> and <clears throat> at verse 23, this is the, the seven woes and the famous screed against the, the Pharisees in Matthew 23. But Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Now, just to give you a little bit of background on what's going on here, what we call the Old Testament, the, the Hebrew Tanakh, their, their mikra, their, their actual um, body of, of scriptures, uh, 
has a provision for tithing. And it was there was one portion that was 10% that needed to go of all of your produce because the Levites weren't given any land. They were given control over the temple and the things of the Lord. And so all the other 11 tribes would tie the 10th percent of all of their produce, their crops and their livestock, and give it to the Levites so that they were supported to be able to do what they did religiously and institutionally for the rest of the nation. And so that 10% is just one portion of what the uh, Jews were supposed to give in terms of their national tax. But um, these Pharisees had gotten to the point where following every jot and tittle of the law was so important that even with their spices, with their herbs, these tiny little amounts, right, they would still count seeds if they had to to make sure that their 10% was exactly tithed as it was supposed to be. Even though, you know, the law wasn't really so much dealing with that issue. It was dealing with their wheat. It was dealing with their barley. It was dealing with their crops and their livestock, something that would really support. But here they were counting cumin seeds, counting dill seeds, and making sure. And, of course, they're making a huge show of this to show how absolutely pious that they are. All at the same time, forgetting the weightier purpose of the law, mercy and justice and helping others of their fellow people into the places they need to to really be in life, to give them a hand up. Jesus says that you won't lift a finger for anyone around you. You won't enter kingdom. You don't let them enter kingdom. They were just caught up in all of these details. It wasn't lawnmower blades or donuts back then, but it was the same principle, the same thing that is going on here. He says, you blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Well, to a Jew, the smallest unclean animal that they knew of in Palestine, in the the, the Aegean area, was a gnat. And the largest unclean animal was a camel. So here is Jesus setting up this beautiful word picture. And literally what what these Pharisees would do is they would put Muslim, they would put cloth over their cups before they poured their liquid into it, whatever it was, wine or water, because if a gnat had fallen into the pitcher, then they would strain it out before they drank to make sure that they were clean. So they're straining out the gnats, but they're swallowing the camel because they are not applying themselves to the weightier portions of the law, the law, part of the law that actually means something, and especially relationally between them and the people that they were supposed to be serving. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but the inside is full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish so that the outside may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. We see the same thing going on, and Jesus railing against it trying to turn the hearts of the people back to the Father, trying to turn the hearts of the people back to the things that really matter, the core issues, and not getting lost in all of this stuff that originally was supposed to be the vehicle for turning the hearts to the people, to the Father, and keeping them on track in terms of the weightier things, but had just devolved into absurdity. At Mark 7, verse 8, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold the traditions of... You hold... let Let me... inflict that differently. Neglecting the commandment of God, this is Jesus talking to the scribes and the Pharisees again, you hold to the tradition of men. 
He was also saying to them, you're experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you is korban, that is to say given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition which you have handed down. And you do many such things as that. Here's what Jesus is talking about. The Jews were supposed to honor their father and mother. The Jewish clan, the Jewish family, the mishpacha, the the extended family, had an almost military precision to it. It needed to in a subsistence culture. If there wasn't that respect for the authority of the father and the mother, then the whole family would fall, and with it, the survivability of the people. And so respect for father and mother was paramount. That's why the prodigal son is such a striking parable if you try to put it back into that context. But here is a tradition of the Pharisees that allows them to take their disposable income and dedicate it to God. Say that it's korban. It's now dedicated to God. And therefore, it can't be used for anything else. I give it only to the temple. Which means they were feathering their own nest by giving it to the temple, right? And they were keeping it from giving it to their parents, which they were supposed to do and required to do by law to support their parents all the way into old age and, and, and to death. You know, but that wasn't going to really give them anything in return. And so here they are subverting again, getting lost in the details. Now here using details of law that they themselves wrote over generations to get a desired result. And Jesus is saying, you've got to go back to the fundamentals. You've got to go back to the core issues. Don't you see what is going on here? And you're justified, and you feel clean, and you're inside that bubble, just like those people with the donuts and the locks on the dumpsters. It seems important. It seems real, but it's not. And there has to be a way for us to be able to break through, to break back through the lock that those details can have over our lives and get back to something that is absolutely real. You know, This is, this is what Jesus is trying to get us, because if we don't do that, then we devolve right down into absurdity and spend hours on donuts rather than realizing what really is at issue with each other. And so as we're talking about this and what the core issue is that, that we're trying to get to here, years ago, Marion and I were going to a, a church as, as visitors and the pastor stood up and he says, you know what, I want to talk about the Father's love. He said, but then I always want to talk about the Father's love. And I just love that because I always want to talk about the Father's love. Jesus always wanted to talk about the Father's love. There's a really good argument to be made that Jesus only had one message that he just repeated over and over and over again in as many different ways with as as many different images and metaphors that he could possibly come up with to try to get everybody on board with just one thing, this notion of the Father's love. You know, I love that whether he talks about good news, whether he talks about kingdom, whether he talks about living water, being born again, the abundant life, whatever he uses, what he's pointing back to is an absolute bedrock reality of life, of the universe, of the cosmos, that at the center of everything, there is this glue from which everything proceeds 
Everything is returning and everything is being held together by this thing that we call love, but it means something so much more than the way we generally use the term. Jesus is trying over and over to get us to embrace that reality. What is that reality? What is the reality of God's love? Because if we can really get into the building with it, if we can start to get our arms around and experience what this is, it will change everything about our experience of life. Absolutely everything. There will be not a single spot of your life, a single perspective from which you can view life that will not be changed if you start to understand the depths of what this love is that he's trying to get across to us. But few people do. It is so difficult to do this. When Jesus talks about the narrow gate and the narrow way, he's not talking about entrance into heaven or hell. He's talking about this piece right here. The road to life is narrow. The gate is constricted because so few people will ever do what it absolutely will take for us to embrace a love that is so deep, so alien to all of our experience here on earth as human beings that we would ever comprehend it unless we are willing to shed everything that we think we know. And now we're back into the shape of the journey that Jesus talks about over and over again, all for the expediency of being able to apprehend, get a clue about what this love is all about. I am the way, the truth, of the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Because only through this way of living life can we start to get a glimpse of what this love really means. It's got to take us on a journey that will shatter everything we think we know and change everything in its wake and give us the freedom to live life. Jesus' way is always the descent and the ascent. We've talked about this over and over again. What Jesus' way will do and what his teaching style will do if you let it is take you into what some call liminal space. And liminal is a word that comes from the Latin, limen, and, and that means a threshold. You know, it's, it's, a, it's kind of the space between spaces, if you will. You open a doorway, you stand on the threshold. There's a space that you're coming from, there's a space that you're going into. You're in the space between the spaces. You're not any one place yet. You're just in this transition period. It's a very difficult place for us to be psychologically, emotionally. We don't like it. We want to be certain. We want to have something to stand on. We want the edges to hold on to. But if we're going to experience something as singular, as other, as this Father's love, then we are going to have to make this transition, this journey. The classic image for me is the trapeze artist. I love that image. You know, you've got the trapeze artist swinging back and forth, and here's the next bar that he or she has to go to, what do they got to do? At some point on the arc of this swing, they have to let go of that bar, maybe even before they've seen the position of the next one, trusting that its arc is coming so that they can grab it and continue on and not end up in the dirt. Sometimes they're backwards and they let go and they spin. Have you seen that? And there's the bar right there and they grab it again. Or maybe they, they, they um, come off that bar and they do a flip and there's the next bar or the next person grabbing them with their hands. But think about it. 
There is a point at which you are attached to nothing. You have let go of the old bar. You haven't really grabbed on to the next bar yet. You trust that it's going to be there. But you're free-falling in that moment. And there is no way to hold on to one bar and grab the next. This isn't monkey bars. This is something different. You know, you actually have to let go in order to get the distance, get the arc, get the whatever it is that they need to be able to get to the next bar. Everything that Jesus is, getting, is, is trying to get us to do is to let go of the old bar. Because as long as you're hanging on to that, you can't get to the new bar. And if your goal is the freedom of knowing how you are really loved and how you can love in return because of the love that you have and can't lose, then everything depends on your willingness, your ability to let go. Look at what Jesus is doing here at John 3. This is the the classic chapter from which John 3.16 comes from. It's Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees of the Pharisees, one of the, 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 the most renowned teachers of the law, comes to Jesus at night. You know, he's got his, you can just imagine, he's got his talit on, he, he's coming incognito, he doesn't want anyone to see, but there's something about Jesus that he wants to know. He's feeling the rub, you see. He's feeling that, that, that uh, sacred tension. He knows something is going on here. He can't risk his reputation getting shot yet, so he comes at night, but he starts asking Jesus questions. And Jesus answers, answers him, and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus says back to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Okay, notice what Jesus is doing. He's giving him a series of opportunities, invitations to let go of the old bar. Here's the first one. Here's the word picture. You've got to be born again, Nicodemus. You come asking me all these linear questions. You're trying to parse it out in your mind, but it's not going to work for you. As long as you're holding on to everything you think you know, holding on to that bar, you can't grab the next one. You've got to be born again. There's an image. And of course, Nicodemus is not yet ready, willing, or able to let go of that bar. And so, of course, he misunderstands and takes it absolutely literally. Well, can I crawl back into my mother's womb in order to be born again? What are you talking about here? And so he rejects the first volley. He rejects the first attempt. Jesus is not deterred. (laughs) He comes back at him again and says, Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus, so there's the next volley, and Nicodemus says back to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answers and says, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Wow, what an indictment. Jesus will throw volley after volley, after volley, image after image, evidence upon evidence, and to keep building the case where eventually the person has enough that they can finally start to loosen the death grip and let go. Now that's about as far as this conversation goes, and we do not see Nicodemus willing to let go of the old bar yet. 
But we know that he eventually does because by the time of the crucifixion, it's he and Joseph of Arimathea who stand before the Sanhedrin in favor of Jesus and make sure that he is buried properly under the law. We know that he gets it. We don't know when he gets it. We don't know the time frame. But there it is. Jesus working tirelessly, you know, not flagging a bit, image after image after image. And here's the next one that we actually read last week, but taking a look again in a different context. This is Jesus moving from Judea through Samaria, going into the Galilee, and he encounters the Samaritan woman by the well. When all of his followers have gone into town to buy supplies, he's sitting at the well. It's hot. He's tired. He has nothing to draw the water with. Here comes a Samaritan woman, and he asks her for a drink. And she's amazed, and she says, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And so here's the first volley. (coughs) Jesus breaks a social boundary in order to reach her. That's the first thing he does. Are you willing to let go enough of your bar here, just at the social level, in order to be able to apprehend something new, Can you do that? (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, Maybe a little water. And so she does. She's able to do that. (coughs) She's able to go ahead and give him a drink. And Jesus answers and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who is it that says to you, give me a drink? You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Here's the second image, the living water. <coughs> I've already got one going, huh? <coughs> and it's not helping. Oh, man, I have been fighting this thing for two and a half weeks. It's not leaving me alone. <coughs> All right. Um, mind over matter, right? I'm going to do this. Uh, Jesus gives her the next image, living water, and she's intrigued, but still she misunderstands, you know? Again, she can't get her head wrapped around a metaphor that big. And she says, he says, uh, Jesus answered, said, if you knew the gift of God and who is it says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. He would have given you living water. And she says to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Fighting back, being literal, over-literal, hanging on to that bar for dear life. She's not ready to let go. And what does Jesus say? Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And the woman says, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. And he says to her, Go call your husband and come here. She rebuffs him again. She's still taking it literally. What's the next thing? Go call your husband. All right? I don't have a husband. You've spoken truly for you've had five husbands and the man you're living with now is not your husband. Bam! Two by four across the forehead, right? Now he's going to play the prophet card and see if he can get through to her this way. And it works. 
Finally, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. But now she devolves again and starts talking about the difference of worship between Mount Gerasim and, and Mount Moriah and all this. But he brings her back to worship in spirit and truth, which was our point from last week. But do you see what's going on here? It's so important that you see because this is every man. This is every woman. Every single one of us. When you are confronted with a concept this big, when you are confronted with a love that is so absolute, so unchanging, so all-encompassing, it does not compute. Your head cannot wrap around it. And even if you think that you've got the concept, you're still holding on to that bar, I guarantee you. Because that's what we do. We hang on to what we think we know. We do not let go of these things willingly until layer after layer builds up, you know? It's like that, that, what is it, mule that falls down into the well and you, you want to bring lines down and drag it back up again, but there's an alternative way to get the mule out of the well. Just keep dumping dirt down there. Every time the mule shakes it off, he's standing a couple inches higher and eventually you can just build him right out of that well. That's the way life really works. It's a slow building up, and we see Jesus doing this over and over in his teaching style. A slow building up that finally gets us enough into the light that we can see a there there that allows us to let go of the old, of the limiting, of that which is exclusionary, that which keeps us apart from each other so that we can grab onto what Jesus is trying to show us and where he's trying to take us. It won't happen overnight. But it will happen if we become more and more willing, if we will stay in the place of disturbance, stay in that liminal space between the spaces, not run back like a kid scared by the waves to his mommy's lap when it comes in, but stay in that space until we can finally push forward again. Are we willing to stay right on the threshold? This is what Jesus is asking us to do. This is what he's trying to get happening in all of our of our lives bridge that gap in the space between the spaces this love that jesus is presenting is so complete it's so absolute it's so unconditional that it's an actual statement of reality this is the way the universe works he's telling us in essence first john tells us that god is love it doesn't do love choose to do it or not god embodies, is, down to the table of the elements, however that applies to God. God is this glue, this first essence, this thing called love. And Jesus is trying to get this across. But I'll tell you what, it is so different than the, what we pass for love in human relations, generally speaking, that if we're not outraged by what we find when Jesus presents this love to us, then we haven't even entered the building yet. If we're not offended by this love, then we haven't begun to even swing enough so that we can get into the liminal space, the place where we can let go of the old bar. It absolutely is outrageous when you consider a love like this. Consider the elder brother of the prodigal son. Right? You know the story. Man has two sons, older and younger. The elder brother stays home, does exactly what he's told. The younger brother takes his portion 
of the inheritance, goes out, squanders everything, ends up eating pig husks, which to a Jew is the lowest that you could possibly sink, metaphorically speaking, right? Then finally realizes, enlightened self-interest, hey, the hirelings at my dad's estate live better than this. I'm just going to go home and say I'm not worthy to be called your son. But just hire me back on, please, so I can eat. When the young man just gets within, crests the rise, and the father can see him, the father is off at a dead run and drapes him with kisses and kills the fatted calf and, and, and orders the party because his son is back home again. Doesn't even wait for the boy to get the words out of his mouth of any kind of contrition. There is really no contrition even mentioned in Jesus' story. It's only enlightened self-interest. I can live better as a hireling with my dad. He doesn't even say the words that he's sorry for what he did. And the father doesn't wait to hear them. He doesn't care. He's here. He's back in my presence. And therefore, he gets everything that I have to give. And the elder brother is outraged. He's angry. He won't come into the party because he's the one who was entitled. If you haven't felt that outrage, if you haven't felt that offense, if you haven't felt that righteous anger against something that is not fair, then you are not even starting to consider what Jesus is talking about when he talks about a love like this. Jesus tells a story of workers who come to the vineyard early in the morning, midday, and just an hour before closing time. Right? And the ones who came early in the day were promised a certain wage. And so when it comes time to pay everybody at the end of the day, the vineyard owner starts with the ones who came last, and he pays them the full day's wages. And so the ones who came early in the day said, wow, then we're going to really get some good time and a half today, right? And they get paid the same, and they're angry, and they're outraged, and they're offended because they're not getting the concept. If you sit here and exist at all, you get everything that there is to get. There is nothing else that could be gotten that you haven't already received because you're sitting here and have been sitting on this planet for as long as you've been sitting on this planet and breathing. And there is no other reason for the outpouring of everythingness. The father says to his older son, son, everything I have is yours. And of course we say, you know, what part of everything don't we understand? Why are we still trying to get some more? Why are we still trying to limit someone else's share as if that gives me mine? When there is no zero-sum game here, Jesus is trying to get across to us, everybody, everything is loved equally and can't be loved any other way because of the nature of the Father's love. It just is. It self-exists. That's not fair. You realize that, right? That's not just. You realize that, right? God's love is not just. God's love is not fair. And unless you are rocked to your core by that, unless that really does something to you, if you are not offended by that, then it hasn't gotten through yet what that really means. Everything about justice is balancing the scales. Everything about God's love is deliberately unbalancing the scales, always in favor of the beloved. There is no justice in God's love. There is mercy. There is compassion. 
Yes, there's a place for justice, but it has nothing to do with God's love. It has to do with the maintenance of human groups. Yes, we need the justice in those groups, but it doesn't reflect God's love. And this is the mistake that we've made for millennia with the church. We've tried to mirror and match somehow, resolve somehow justice with God's love, and you can't do it. Justice, meritocracy, the sense that we have to make ourselves worthy to earn a place in God's kingdom, that is what hanging on to the old bar looks like. That's the bar that we're hanging on to. And as long as we're hanging on to any shred of any sort of concept that what we do needs to earn God's love, we will never be free to grab onto the next bar. And until we grab onto the next bar and understand how we are truly loved with this kind of abandon, then we will never be able to graduate past a parochial love, a love that loves this much and not that out there. The highest form of love Jesus always called out was love of the enemy. How do you love the enemy unless you know that your enemy within is loved with equal abandon? If you don't have that in your back pocket, if you don't have that blessed assurance that tells us how we are loved, how can we pour out love to someone who clearly does not deserve it, who is not a lovely person, who is not a moral person, who is a monster. How do we love that person? If we haven't experienced that love in ourselves when we were unlovely, when we were monster-like, then we'll never understand how it is that we can reflect that and pour it out. And if we can't do that, we are never free from that hamster wheel of trying to be good enough. Everything Jesus is about is making us free. If you follow my ways, you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Let go of the old bar, grab on to the new bar, and then let go of that bar and grab on to the new bar, and then that bar. It is inexhaustible in terms of what we will learn from the Father. But this love is bedrock. It is absolute sine qua non, without which nothing else happens. And with this peace, even the beginnings of this peace, everything changes. Everything changes. And so if we are really going to follow where Jesus is going, the first thing is that we have to be willing to be outraged. We have to be willing to be offended. And we have to be willing then to move through that and get to the other side. And what does the other side look like? It's that sense of playfulness that comes back into life. It's that sense of okayness that comes back into life, even when circumstances have not changed for the better. But we feel the sense that something has changed. Our viewpoint has changed. Our perspective has changed. We know somehow, beyond all the evidence, that everything is going to be fine. When I was going to deliver my first sermon and I went to, Marion and I went to our friend Lou's bedside and he was dying of diabetes the last time we were to see him, although we didn't know that, but suspected. And the last thing he said to us, he took our hands in his hands and he just looked at us with his intensity and he said, love each other. Just love each other. You know what? Nothing focuses the mind like a deadline. And what greater deadline is there than your death and knowing that it's coming? He died three days later. He knew it. 
He had stopped the dialysis. He wasn't going for it anymore. He knew this would be the last time that he would see Marion and me. And what do you want to say? What do you want to impart if you're going to see that person, you're seeing that person for the last time? Love each other. Just love each other. And he paused for a beat and he said, and kid around a little bit. The kidding around is the part that allows us to know that we've really let go of that justice bar and grabbed on to the love bar. When we finally have gotten the first inkling of what it means to be loved with a love that we cannot lose because we cannot gain it, it just is. Now we can joke around. Now we can laugh. Now we can relax the death grip. Now we know that we're worthy of God's love because we're simply here. Be willing to be outraged. Wrestle with this as Jacob wrestled with the Lord. The images are all there showing us this way, this shape. And then beyond the offense, beyond the outrage, returns the childlike playfulness and the ability to just enjoy the decision for love that we have made and has been made for us since before the beginnings of time. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for allowing us to return to first principles. Thank you for the first principles themselves. Help us more and more to break down what needs to be broken down so that we can let go and free fall into this love that you have for us. Give us the courage. Give us the abandon. Give us enough of the evidence Help us to read what we need to read and see what we need to see. Experience what we need to experience more and more to understand that there is a love at the core of all this that we may not have considered. Help us to look at our lives and see the evidence of that growing sense of your love or lack thereof and make decisions based on that. We want to be free in you, Lord. Thank you for giving us every opportunity to do just that. Thank you for loving us the way that you do. Never let us forget. We can only love in return because you loved us first. In Jesus' name we pray. Ah, Let's all stand.